Increasing reports of, of the settlements that uh, the city of Minneapolis was making with the, the victims of police brutality during the protests and riots uh, last summer. Uh, and since last summer, there have been just a steady flow of reports of those who were indicted for assaulting people and for destroying property. Um, and since that time, you know, this, this question about uh, who is responsible for, you know, what happened last summer. Are there are individuals primarily responsible? Is society and culture primarily responsible? And I think this that the whole, uh, in, all, all the situations and conflict and trouble from last summer really raised a larger issue that I think is important and prominent in our cultural discussions right now. Um, who is responsible for our personal and societal hardships? Who is to blame? And today's passage is really about some of those questions, and I think actually raises a more important question that it seems like, uh, well, it doesn't seem like, it's the, it's, it's the case. There's another question that we'll get into it that is, that is really a, a more important one um, than just who is to blame individuals or society for the hardships that we face, whether it's hardships that we face as individuals or, or as a society. And so the people of Israel found themselves in similar types of circumstances with you know, massive hardships coming at them as a nation that individuals were suffering, that obviously the whole society with suffering and really generations of idolatry and immorality and violence uh, led to them being exiled from the land. And so over the years during this season, the, the nation as a whole came up with a, a little saying or a little proverb, and they said, you know, the fathers have eaten the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. So basically, they say, you know, our parents are the ones that did something wrong or did something stupid, and now it's us that have to pay for it. And basically, it was a statement saying that God was not fair in the judgments and in the hardships that the nation of Israel were encountering at that time. God is not fair. Life is not fair. Why are we suffering this way? It's God's fault, it's our parents' fault. And at the very beginning of this passage, God makes it very clear that he wasn't going to let this, this proverb, this saying, continue on as, this, as something the culture relied upon. And he makes a couple statements right there at the beginning before going into an explanation about how he was going to stop this proverb from continuing. First thing he said is that, Everyone's souls are his. The souls of the current generation, the souls of the previous generations, the parents, the children, everybody's souls, their very lives, were his possession. And that as his possession, everyone would be accountable to him for their sins, and everybody would have to pay for the sins that they committed. And so it was a statement of, an, an initial statement of, 
of how he was going to bring justice and execute judgment on people, which he had the full right to do since they were his. He had created them. God has created every single human being uh, that has ever lived, is living, or will ever live, and as such, he then is the only one that judges, and everybody will be held accountable for their sins. Now, I want to just state three things that kind of bring a context to the, to the explanation of God's judgment that follows. The first one is, a, is an acknowledgement that indeed the present generation was suffering due to the sins of previous generations. So there's an, there's an element of truth in their complaint. It's not altogether true. There's an element of truth in it. And God had said himself that, that if they as a nation, generation after generation after generation, fails to follow him, eventually it would lead to a generation being exiled into foreign nations and suffering the kinds of hardships that they were suffering. So it is, it is somewhat true that they were facing suffering due to previous generations. Now, what they didn't acknowledge is the second thing. They were also suffering as a result of their own sins, and their own sins were egregious enough to where they deserved what they were getting as well. There was, we've, we've spent the last six weeks uh, going over the specific sins that the present generation of Israel was guilty of. Corrupt leadership, the spreading of and believing in conspiracies. They were dishonoring the family, mothers and fathers. They were oppressing vulnerable people, the poor, the immigrant. There was rampant sexual immorality and sexual assault. And they were breaking the Sabbath, which was this kind of this coverall uh, symbol that they had completely really forgotten about God. So the first thing is, yes, they were suffering due to previous generations. Second thing, yep, they were also suffering to the sins of the present generation. They were guilty as well and deserving of the hardship. And the third thing is that God does deal with us as groups, but he also deals with us as individuals. And I think this passage does a great job of breaking this down to where we can see and understand exactly where we fit when we are experiencing hardship and how to approach it. So there are five categories of people that God brings up in this passage as he explains how he approaches judgment. There's the, the righteous man. There's the wicked man. There's the wicked son of a righteous man. There's the righteous son of a wicked man. And then there's the repentant, wicked man. And so I first want to look into what is, if, if God says that he is going to judge everyone for their sins and determine whether they are righteous or whether they are wicked, how does God see and understand righteousness? What does it mean to be a righteous person? And he gives really 13 points about what it means to be a righteous person. The first one is kind of a, is kind of a, a broad blanket statement. The person that does what is just and right. And the remaining, the remaining 12 fit underneath what it means to be a just and right person. First of all, they don't, he, he, 
He says they don't eat upon the mountains. Now, eating upon the mountains was a reference to uh, basically uh, idolatrous worship rituals that oftentimes involved some form of sexual immorality. The second thing was that the righteous person does not lift up their eyes to idols. Basically, the righteous person worships the one true God who created all things and doesn't worship created things. Next, the righteous person does not defile his neighbor's wife or engage in adulterous relationships or engage in sexual immorality. The fifth one, doesn't approach a woman during her menstrual impurity. And interestingly enough, we had that question come up, why is that a point of righteousness? And I think it points to the, the, the larger issue of what it meant to be uh, distinct as a nation, um, and there was the clean and the unclean that Christ later abolished upon his coming, but were they going to follow the laws that God had given them in regard to clean and unclean, and in terms, I think, of, of life and death? which that um, sexual intercourse during a woman's menstrual impurity uh, would be involving a life-giving act in the midst of also something that reflects death. Number six, the righteous person doesn't oppress anyone, doesn't take advantage of somebody that is vulnerable and weak. Seventh, rather than that, they engage in acts of mercy. So not only do they abstain from oppression, they engage in helping those who are in need. And specifically, he mentions um, the returning of a cloak or the returning of a pledge. And so oftentimes, like we do, if, if we take a loan out, we have to have some sort of security for that loan. Well, in the law that God had given Israel... Uh, if somebody gave a cloak as a pledge for a loan, they were required to return that cloak to the person by the end of the day, even if they hadn't repaid the loan. Eighth, the righteous person commits no robbery, which means they, they don't steal for their own benefit. They don't take from others for their own benefits. They don't engage in theft. Number nine, they give bread to the hungry and they cover the naked with a garment. So again, they see those who are in their midst as a community or in their family, uh, and rather than oppress them, they meet their needs. They, instead of stealing and taking from people for their own benefit, at their own cost, they give benefit to others. Number 10, they don't take interest or profit from loaning money. Basically, they didn't have jobs that involved uh, making a living with money. They didn't make money with money. They were, it, was, it was illegal for the people of God to charge interest to other people of Israel. They could charge interest to outsiders, to other nations, and this is all part of what God was doing to show the strength of the nation of Israel, but within the community, they were, they were not allowed to take interest on loans. They do not withhold their hands, excuse me, they, the righteous person, number 11, withholds his hand from injustice. He does not engage in unfair treatment of people, but executes true justice, which means they don't show uh, bribery, they don't engage in bribery, they don't show favoritism in the, in the decisions that they make with others. And then he concludes it with, a, with another general statement that kind of wraps everything up. They walk, a righteous person walks in my statutes and keeps my rules by acting faithfully, which is kind of a, a catch-all. All right. He mentions uh, 11 specific things 
underneath these broader categories of doing what is right and following all of God's laws, which there were hundreds of them that are recorded uh, in the Mosaic Law in the, in the Pentateuch. And so that's a, that's a standard of righteousness that God has given to this nation and expects people to follow that. And if they don't follow that, they are judged. And he says their souls will die. The souls of the righteous will live. The souls of the unrighteous will die. Now, what does it mean that a soul will live or a soul will die? Well, there are, you know, when you look up the word soul in the, in the, the, the dictionaries, there's a variety of meanings. And I think that there are two ideas that are really being reflected here. First of all, the soul is, is the seat of our affections, our desires, our, our decision-making capacities. It's our, it's our inner vitality. It's what, it's what moves us. It's what makes us uh, alive and directs us to, the, to do the things that we do. But it's also the life force of a person. It can also refer to that, the inner being, a person's essence. We are, we are, we are a person. We have an identity aside from this fleshly body that we inhabit. That is also the soul. And I think he's talking about both of these things at the same time. See, they were experiencing national collapse. Their nation was, was falling to pieces. They were being taken into exile. But there were those within the nation that could still experience life as individuals, even though their nation was falling to pieces. The material world around them could be in shambles, but their inner life was still one of, of confidence, of peace, of a sense of security. And you can see this, I mean, throughout the, throughout the stories of the prophets, individuals arise that are focused on that did indeed live this kind of way. Daniel is one example. There were others. They could live righteously even though the nation was under judgment. And they as individuals could experience the life of God by obeying his law while the nation was falling apart and not living. It wouldn't be that way for the wicked. The wicked, who were not following God's law, would not only be facing the corporate judgment that Israel would be facing, but they also would be facing internal judgment. The vitality of their life would be taken away because uh, they were not living righteously. So their lives, their existence at the time, I think, is, is, one, is, is a way we have to look at this. But then I think also in the second way is indeed, and this is the way that I think that we think of it more common when we talk about the death or the lives of souls. Upon death, okay, the, the, the physical dying of the person, that person's soul would not die if they were a righteous person. They would experience death in their bodies, but their souls would experience life because God would not judge them and destroy their souls. And God says, so that, so that we, we've seen what it means to be a righteous person. We've seen what it means to have a soul that is a, a living soul. And now we get to how we understand God judges people. He judges people according to their own actions.
We can be affected by the actions of other people. We can be influenced by the actions of other people, just like the nation of Israel at this time. They were suffering the consequences of previous generations. But they did not excuse, nor could they justify their present actions because of the previous generations. Everyone's actions are their own. Everyone needs to take ownership of the things that they do because God is going to judge each individual according to their actions. And so the question that arises from this discussion, in addition to who is at fault in these, in these uh, national or cultural or societal hardships that we engage in, is it the responsibility of the individual's Is it the responsibility of the culture? I think both of those have to be true. The question, though, that we each need to ask ourselves is, how is God going to judge me? How is God going to judge me? That's really the greater question. Righteous parents do not automatically create righteous children. Wicked parents do not automatically create wicked children. That's what he's saying here. Everyone is responsible for the actions that they take. Now, if you think about the conditions that were around at the time, they're very stark. Families were being displaced, and I think they probably sound familiar with some of the hardships that people are suffering in our day and age. Families were displaced. The economy, excuse me, the economy was abysmal. There was a shortage of basic necessities. The leaders were corrupt and oppressive. The courts were unjust, which means that any time that somebody was oppressing, they couldn't go and get justice because the judges and the the kings and the leaders were corrupt. Violence and theft and sexual assault was pervasive. There was essentially just a a breakdown in overall civil society at, at the most fundamental level, and it was very widespread. So It was a hard life in ancient Israel in the midst of exile. And a lot of reasons for people to pursue comfort to to soothe themselves in the midst of the hardship. But oftentimes, as we've seen, the pursuit of comfort, the pursuit of a sense of justice, the pursuit of of pleasure, the pursuit of security, these things oftentimes cause us to sin against God and hurt others in the midst of these kinds of hardships. And so there are many reasons to blame others. There are many reasons to excuse ourselves when we engage in sin, when times are hard. But in the eyes of God, this is not just. It is not right. We cannot continue to let the the, uh, cultural conditions dictate our sense of responsibility. Life isn't fair. But we can't say that God isn't fair. We suffer the consequence of the actions of others, and we suffer the consequence of actions of ourselves. We have the same problem. We blame our parents, we blame our society, and we justify and excuse our actions because of the pain and the hardship that we suffer. And what, what happens, just be, and, you know, this, this proverb came out of the nation of Israel, the parents ate the sour grapes, but it's the kids' teeth that are grinding. Well, there was a belief behind that. And what happens, and I think we can, we can begin to believe one of two different things. 
if we are not seeing that we are responsible for our own actions. If we think it's our parents, if we think it's society, if we lay the blame at somebody else's feet, one of two things could happen. One is that we believe that we ourselves as individuals are actually trapped in a culture that we have no control of. We're trapped in a body that we have no control of. We have these genetics that we have no control of. Where we're at is, 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 is a place of being a victim. We can start believing that, and then we start justifying the hurts that we engage in against others and the offenses against God because we are in this place we have no control over, and people are hurting us, and we have no recourse. This leads to, I think, this, this belief leads to a, having no hope, having no hope for change. The second thing I think we can start believing is that we really are empowered by our genetics. We are empowered by the culture that we're in to fulfill the desires that are working inside of us, these deceitful desires. Hey, if I pursue this, I'm going to be comforted. I'm going to experience justice. The evils of my life will go away. So we have these desires that we, that we, that we long to fulfill, and the culture and seemingly our genetics, since we're feeling this way, are all encouraging it. And so instead of this belief leading to no hope, this belief leads to having no desire to change at all. We can, we think, we can think that we're a victim and trapped, or that we think, or we can think that we are empowered. Everybody else is doing it, so why can't I? Either way, we blame others and excuse ourselves. We don't own our own actions. Whether you're the police or the perpetrators, husbands, wives, there's always things, parents, children, employers, employees, whatever, all kinds of relationships. I was having a conversation uh, this week with somebody and brought up, a, 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 I, I challenged this person. And it was a specific instant. And rather than deal with the specific thing that we needed to deal with, blame was put on something else. Yeah, but this. And we never got to the bottom of the initial problem. That's what we do. Somebody brings up a problem, maybe our conscience brings up a problem, and we begin to play all these mental games, and we get into arguments and debates trying to excuse ourselves and direct the challenge elsewhere. It's just like what we saw with man and woman in the garden. God came and challenged them for eating of the tree of the knowledge of, of good and evil, and Adam blamed his wife, his wife blamed the snake, and then God executed and listed out his judgments to all of them. Now, there's a bright spot in this passage. The wicked can change. And I think that if you were to go down that list, all that, those 13 things, very extensive, and that's just an overview I don't think any of us would be able to say, you know what, I am completely innocent of, of all of these negative things, and I've always done the right things right. I don't think anybody would ever be able to say that. So when we say the wicked or the unrighteous, I think we have to put ourselves into that category. And God says, 
that there's hope. The wicked can change. And there's two important ideas that are reflected in the text that gives him the authority and the boldness to say that. First of all, God owns our souls. He owns our souls. It's not the culture that owns our souls. It's not even us that owns our souls. God has authority. That's what his ownership means. And with authority comes power, and God says we can change. And then God does call us to repent. He does call us to change, which means it's possible. It's possible. And so he gives a path to repentance. He says, turn from the path of wickedness. Stop engaging in the actions that are wicked and evil and destructive to you and to others. And then he says, you need to make yourself a new heart and a new spirit. Now, these are not new. Moses in Deuteronomy foretold that the nation would end up in exile in foreign nations. And Moses, this first generation and the second generation, told them that they needed to change their hearts as well. But he also said that that they wouldn't be able to, but that, that they would get a new leader that would come and lead the nation, and he would give them a new heart. He says in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. So we need new hearts. We need new spirits. See, a new heart gives us something that starts loving new things. Our old hearts love wickedness. New hearts are going to love God and love righteousness. New hearts give us new desires, new beliefs. We need to change what we love, and that's always been the problem. Earlier on in Ezekiel chapter 11, he says this, Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the people's, and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, I will give you the land of Israel. So again, he's talking to them in exile. And when they all come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations, and I will give them one heart, and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh, and I will give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. They shall be my people, and I will be their God. But as for those whose heart goes after detestable things and their abominations, I will bring their deeds upon their own heads, declares the Lord. So the question then becomes, how do we get a new heart? If that's the key, how do we get a new heart? Well, God's promise to provide a leader that started as far off and as early on as Moses, was ultimately fulfilled in the new leader, the new prophet, the new king, Jesus Christ. So how do we experience this? Well, the first, the first thing that we have to realize is that the life that we're living that increasingly feels like death, guilt, shame, fear, insecurity, not thriving. We all know what it means to live under darkness with the feel of death. Eventually, we get to the point where we hate our own sin. We hate what it's doing to us. 
We hate what it's doing to others. We acknowledge that we are no longer living. We maybe never have lived. Our sin has brought us to the point where we are crumbling and we, are, we feel like we're at the place of death. We have no hope. And so that can, that can be a very self-preserving reality. We don't like being dead. Whether we're thinking about life now or whether we think about life in the future, we don't want to die and face judgment. We want to live. We want to live while we're living, and we want to live after we die. So what do we do then when we come to this place with our sin? We can't believe we're a victim and enslaved to it. We have to see that God owns us, and he's provided a way, and he's called us out. Well, this is where the work of Jesus Christ comes in in a very powerful way. We have to do something with the sin, the guilt, the shame, the fear, and all the things that keep us stuck, the hopelessness. So Jesus took the death that we deserve. Jesus took the death that sins cause. He did two things with that. First of all, he offers forgiveness, which means that literally he comes to us, takes the sin and the guilt and the shame and everything associated with it, he lifts it up, and he takes it away. That's forgiveness. He also reconciles. Reconciles is important because we have hardships in our life that are the consequence of the sins of others, absolutely. But Jesus Christ didn't die just for our own sins that we confess and then experience forgiveness from. Jesus Christ also came to reconcile the sin that others have committed against us. Jesus' death is not, it covers the sins of the world, the scriptures say. So we can apply the death of Jesus Christ to the sins that we've committed, and we can apply the death of Jesus Christ to the sins that others have committed against us. But we have to acknowledge both. Oftentimes, our, our shame and our guilt and our fear, we don't want to talk about our sins, but just as often, we really don't want to talk about the sins that others have committed against us because it, 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 it reveals our vulnerability and our pain. We have to acknowledge both. If we don't acknowledge both, we can't own it, and we can't give away something that we've never owned. We can't put on Jesus' shoulders something that has never been on our shoulders. And this is the place of confession. Yes, Lord God, I have sinned against you. Yes, Lord God, others have sinned against me in these ways. And that's a work of faith. Is Jesus' death on the cross enough? The scriptures say that upon believing in that, we are baptized into Jesus' death, which means that we are identified. His death became our death. His payment for sin became our payment for sin. His payment for other sins became our payment or their payment for their sins. It's through faith that we're baptized into his death. And then we receive the promise of the Holy Spirit which had been promised in the, in, the, in the Old Testament as well, the prophets. I'm going to give you a new spirit. I'm going to put my spirit inside of you. It has always been the case that God wants to dwell with us and in us, and it's always been the case that without that dwelling with and dwelling in, we would never be able to live a righteous life. 
And so upon faith, we're not only baptized into Jesus' death, we're also baptized into Jesus' life. The Holy Spirit comes inside of us, gives us a new heart, gives us a new spirit. The scriptures say that the Holy Spirit regenerates us and makes us new. We have a new heart and a new spirit. We can have new, new loves, new desires, and from those new loves and new desires comes righteousness. Jesus' resurrection from the dead to life is our resurrection from the dead to life. And then finally, because we have our sins forgiven and other sins against us cleansed, and we have a new heart and a new spirit, we can now live righteously, which is the work of mind renewal and the changing of our beliefs. It's our, our beliefs sit at our desires. And our beliefs, there's oftentimes there's like memory, culture and our flesh, people around us. We grow up embodying beliefs that we don't even know we believe. And so the work of the Christian and the work of the Spirit in us is this work of, of believing new things, believing God, believing Jesus Christ and what they say is a way of life and not the way of death. We learn to love what Jesus loves so we can do what Jesus does and that is what happens when you have a new heart. You know, Martin Luther said, the first of his 95 thesis, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. This is our calling. This is our calling, and we've got to do it every day. Whether it's the first day where we recognize our sin needs to be cleansed and forgiven and the sins of others, and that the promise of God through Jesus Christ is real and true, and we, we, we become a Christian. From that day on, our life is one of believing that life is found in God through Christ, and that Christ renews, and that the Spirit renews and gives us life which means that we will not only live while we are on this earth, but we will also live after we die our souls eternally with God. Let me pray. God, thank you for this, this, this strong message of repentance that forces us as individuals to ask the most important question, how is God going to judge me? And I pray, God, that you would help us to look at ourselves and to examine ourselves and to quit blaming others for the hardships that we endure so that we can have a heart of righteousness and live for the benefit of others in glory to you and so that we might live forever. In your son's name we pray, amen.